President Trump, if you see this, please save us. I don't even see our American flag anymore. Biden's talking with some kind of crazy flag. This is America. This is our land. Please, President Trump. Please, please, I hope you have a plan. God, please save us. Save us from the devil, please. Y'all are about to have a panic attack. <laughs> this is our country. Our country. This is awful. God, please save us, please. Welcome, fellow plebs. My name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. Okay, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Tribunus Plebis podcast. It's good to be with you all. First off, I am sorry for the long wait between episodes here. Uh, We had a family medical issue in Florida, and as I live in Massachusetts, I had to drive down there to avoid COVID as best I could and to make sure that I could at least visit with them in person, even if it was at a distance. So the long and short of it is that I really didn't get anything done since the middle of last week. And as to the medical situation, everything went as well as it could have on that front, but it did prevent me on getting an episode out in a decent time frame, so I do apologize for that. In the future, I'm going to work on recording one or two or maybe more sort of evergreen episodes that can be uploaded at any time so that I have something to fill the gaps in if another emergency ever comes up. And it was even a little more embarrassing for me because it was just last episode that I talked about trying to get on a tighter schedule, but I guess that's life. Now, obviously, I will choose family over a podcast every time, but if I can get some content out, you know, and get it in a little stockpile and get it out, I will always try to do that. So again, my apologies, and I thank you for the patience you've all shown during this time. Okay, so back to the primary topics here. And I'm just going to admit to you that I have way fewer notes here than I usually do, so if I ramble a bit, please bear with me. All right, so this is an already dated story in the insane news cycle we live in. But before we get to the main topic here, I want to talk about the whole GameStop stock story. The quick, too long, didn't listen, explain like I'm five is this. Some hedge funds shorted GameStop stocks, and a subreddit called Wall Street Bets decided to squeeze that short position. The long description really isn't all that different. And I'm going to keep this simple just to keep moving along and not get bogged down in unnecessary detail. But essentially, the hedge funds bet against GameStop. They wanted that stock to decline in value. They borrowed shares of the stock and shorted them, 
Again, the specifics of how this works aren't terribly important, but this just means that the hedge funds were betting that the value of GameStop stocks would drop, which is basically the complete opposite of how most of us usually conceive of investing in stocks. Most of us usually think about buying stocks and wanting them to actually increase in value so we make money. So shorting a stock often seems counterintuitive. But you can make money by shorting a stock if the stock price actually does drop in the time period you thought it would. And actually, you know what? Let me let me actually explain shorting a little bit so we better understand the rest of this story. And I'm pretty sure I can do this and it'll at least mostly be correct. So in a short, the trader opens a position by borrowing shares of a stock from their broker firm for a specified amount of time. The trader then sells these borrowed shares to buyers willing to pay the current market price and they keep those proceeds. Then the trader has to return the borrowed shares when the contract expires. In this situation, the trader is betting that the price will decline and that they can then purchase the shares at a lower cost than what they were selling them for. The difference between the original sales price and the buyback price, so long as the value of that stock went down, is profit for the trader. So if a trader shorted a stock valued at $10 and later bought it back at $8, they'd have made a $2 profit per share. So we can see that a short position can bring massive profits, but it also carries with it a substantial risk because if that stock goes up, rather than down, the trader is on the hook for that difference as well. So if they were to short a $10 stock and its value is at $12 at the end of the contract, then they owe $2 per share. The losses one can incur here are therefore, theoretically at least, unlimited. When the value of the stock goes up, this is a short squeeze. And the danger in a short squeeze is that it could result in as I just mentioned, theoretically infinite losses. We should also add here that a short squeeze can be intentionally done by somebody who wants you to lose badly. Okay, so I, and I think that's all basically correct. Everything I said, I think is more or less accurate. So this particular hedge fund called Melvin went very hard on shorting GameStop stocks and actually bet on something like 120% of all outstanding shares, which was in the millions. And now step in the Reddit trader bros. The Wall Street Bet subreddit basically got together and said, screw these hedge funds. We are going to squeeze them by buying GameStop and artificially increasing its value. And they did. And a lot of that pressure was applied using the Robinhood trading app. Robinhood is famous for claiming to democratize trading, and for letting the small folks like us buy into the stock market, even allowing us to buy fractions of shares. So if Apple is selling at $130, but you only have $20 to invest, you can purchase $20 worth of one share of that stock, which is actually kind of cool, I guess, if you're into trading. Now, 
What the Robinhood app allowed here is for thousands of more people to get in on the squeeze by tossing 10, 20, or $50, or even maybe a couple hundred dollars into the buying frenzy, and to keep the squeeze running long enough to outlast Melvin and the other hedge funds. In the end, the value of GameStop stock went up over 1,000% in a short period of time. So Melvin, the hedge fund with over $13 billion to its name, was faced with two options as the squeeze started. One was just to close the contracts and eat those losses. The other was to short even more GameStop stock and hope to wait out the squeeze. Well, they went with option two and dug themselves in even deeper, which just got the trader bros even more excited. And Reddit traders doubled down as well and kept buying and kept the GameStop value extremely high. It was like a weird financial game of chicken in a sense. Would the $13 billion hedge fund run out of liquid assets before the Reddit traders ran out of cash and enthusiasm? Well, Reddit was pretty enthusiastic, and the media helped churn new buyers in as well with their narratives of David versus Goliath. Eventually, Melvin and other hedge funds ended up closing out their contracts and eating massive losses. And many a Reddit trader bro made a lot of money. The guy who is said to have really started the entire squeeze was said to have started his position with 50 grand and increased that amount to over $40 million by buying and selling on the bumps and downturns. So that's a very quick summary of what happened, and I am pretty sure that's essentially correct as far as it goes. And I'm doing my best to explain it here without being too wonky or above my personal level of understanding, but I think it all generally holds. Now, as to the overarching theme of the little guy taking down the big guy or the poor people taking down the rich and powerful, there is a little bit of truth to this. It was pretty wild watching a subreddit decimate a $13 billion hedge fund and force them to eat billions in losses as they capitulated to the squeeze. It really was. I was consumed with this story for a few days. It was awesome to watch, mostly because hedge funds deserve to be attacked in this way, and it was great to see it happen. But there's a dark side to this as well, which I want to hit on, and then I want to talk about how we need to be very careful here when thinking and talking about this event. The dark side starts with the less savvy investors. The core of the Reddit trader bros, they all knew what they were doing, why they were doing it, and the dangers inherent in that action. So I don't really care about those guys right now. I mean, really screw those people, even if they ate it hard when the stock took a nosedive. They knew enough. Their losses are between themselves and whoever else they may care for. I do not care about those people. But I do care about the less savvy people who got dragged along in the excitement. A lot of people who don't really understand the stock market in general, let alone shorts, got involved. They got involved in this and they lost money all along the way. Sometimes it was just a random person tossing 40 bucks into Robin Hood, which they wouldn't miss even if it was all gone. And they did it just to get a laugh, which is fine. But there was also a lot of money poured in in some of these cases by people who had no idea what they were doing. 
And for every kind of halfway good story, like one I saw where a broke guy tossed his last 50 bucks or so into Robin Hood, and then he sold on a bump and was able to afford his insulin, which, you know, I'm happy for, by the way. But that story obviously speaks to the urgent need of Medicare for all in this insane country, rather than actually speaking to the stock market as being a good thing. For every guy buying insulin, there were hundreds who lost everything that they put into it. Those are the people who bought high, or maybe they even bought at the right time, but didn't understand the pump concept and got left holding the bag as the stock market slid into a downturn that continues to this day. Now, when Robinhood itself really took off during the start of the pandemic, with chud people like Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports fame evangelizing about playing the stock market, this is exactly what worried me. People like him, relatively savvy traders who have money to play with, convincing the desperate to enter the casino, where those same savvy people with bankrolls, people like Portnoy himself, could feed off of and destroy them. It's kind of like convincing people that the way to make money is by playing high-stakes poker. Except in this case, you're one of the top poker players in the country, you have a giant bankroll, and you're only doing it to generate more suckers to fleece at the tables. So in the end, can I laugh at the hedge funds? Yeah, of course I can. Trust me, I have laughed at them. Can I applaud the trader bros in the Reddit ecosystem for this particular action? Sure. What they did was, like I said, it was pretty wild to watch. So why do we need to be careful here? Mainly because these trader bros are the same sort of ANCAP assholes who run hedge funds. They are, in fact, little hedge funds. They did two hedge funds, exactly what hedge funds do to everybody else, which is kind of hilarious from that one perspective. But it's important to understand that they didn't do it because they are altruistic. They did it to get rich. I've even now seen some people saying that this is praxis for the left. It is not that at all. Hedge funds and Wall Street bets are not that different. One just has more money and institutional power, and the other is more crowdsourced and individualistic. These are not heroes. Sure, they did something funny, but what they did will do zero or almost zero long-term damage. Melvin is already bailed out by the banks. Don't worry about them. Melvin will be fine. The trader bros who got rich, they'll be fine. This is not praxis. These people are more anarcho-capitalists than they are actually good people. The system was not changed. The system will go on even if slightly modified. In fact, Robinhood, the app supposedly meant to democratize trading, yeah, scumbags like the rest of them. In the heat of the short squeeze, they shut down the trading of GameStop and several other companies to protect them and the hedge funds. An obviously illegal manipulation of the market. And then, in a patently absurd but entirely obvious move, Google removed all of the bad reviews from the App Store to protect Robinhood. To protect them from the same supposed market all of these goofball dicks say they support. Oh, and here is the other thing about Robinhood. 
they offer free trading. Now, how could they possibly do that? Well, here's the thing. Brokerage firms like Citadel, which is a massive trading firm, are the ones who actually handle the trade. Robinhood is kind of the middleman to connect individual traders with the market. What Citadel does here is basically front the money on trades. If you sell one share of Apple and there isn't an immediate buyer, Citadel gives you the money and holds the share until they have a buyer. Then, and here's the shady shit, Citadel pays Robinhood and they pay them more than every other partner that they have for your trading info and the info of everybody else. What this information allows Citadel to do is to trade on the margins by understanding, with this insider information, exactly where the lower level traders are pushing and pulling money to and from. Citadel is basically trading in front of everybody else by using this information. Robinhood screws over its customers by allowing Citadel to front run and to get to stocks first or sell them first or to simply avoid certain stocks altogether. So screw Robinhood. They are simply out there taking advantage of people. In the end, the system trudges on unchanged even as it treads on you. This is the universal truth. The system is like a Terminator. Listen and understand. The system is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. The hedge funds themselves will learn from this and adapt. The trader bros will go back to ranting about stocks on Reddit. Robinhood will continue to serve the needs of the wealthy over the poor. The world will spin, and this entire group of people will remain opposed to what I want this world to be. One thing that I'm a little optimistic about here is that more people will come to realize that the stock market is nonsense and that the stock market has no realistic attachment to the economy at large. People can see clearly how insane and disconnected the stock market is from any real assessment of value or the economy itself right in this story. I have heard people articulate it. But the question remains whether they will be able to apply this lesson to the stock market at large and overcome their ingrained beliefs especially when the fluctuations of the stock market doesn't, you know, serve their political allegiances or agendas. And what I mean by this is to take what they saw with this GameStop fiasco and apply it across the stock market as a whole. I mean, really, who here can look someone in the eye and say that this fellow who made $40 million by pumping and dumping the stock created $40 million of value here? Who can look at the heights of the stock's value and say the company was ever really worth that? It's absolutely insane and it makes no sense whatsoever. Right now, I'm seeing people who kept going on and on about the economy under Trump because the stonks were high, ranting about how the stock market doesn't mean anything and it's so obvious. But if the stock market goes down in two months, those same people will once again 
talk about the stock market being the most important thing in the world because Biden sucks and blah, blah, blah. It's hard to battle through our own dissonances. I struggle with it constantly myself, but we need to try and see what's really going on here. All right, what is next here? All right, so last episode, I talked a little bit about who we should listen to and who we should work with. Today, I want to expand that idea a little bit and talk about why we shouldn't be fans of politicians or political talking heads or anybody else who may or may not fall into those categories. And before I want to go on, I just want to stress something. It's okay to, I guess, like or generally prefer a person or even tacitly support them. The problem comes when we become devoted to people and we begin to idolize them or support them beyond the point of sanity. Okay, that said, as Americans, we are encouraged to vote. In fact, we even often see it referred to as our duty or our civic responsibility to vote. Especially every four years when we elect a president, but really every two years too if we include the midterms. In fact, this mindset actually creates a bit of a societal toxin as many people step into that voting booth, they put a check mark next to that appropriate name or names, and then they drop their ballot into the counting machine and they walk out the front door and then they say, I did my duty as an American citizen. And then they promptly proceed to willfully ignore everything for two years or four years until the next election that they vote in when they do much the same. They enter the booth, they put a check mark down, they throw it in the accounting machine, and they, I did my duty as an American citizen. And they vote, and they do it with good intentions, I would never doubt that aspect. But they seem to fail to understand that votes are not politics. They fail to see that votes are not change. Voting is routinely talked about as the singular way to make change in this country, but this is wrong. We are told that voting is politics, or at least a huge part of it. This is also incorrect. And wait, so I'm saying that voting isn't politics? Yes, I am. Well, if that's so, then what is politics? Well, politics is blocking landlords from accessing the courthouse to evict people. Politics is a community forming a human wall around the building that undocumented immigrants are hiding in to keep ICE agents from arresting them. Politics is organizing community groups and mutual aid coalitions. Politics is uniting as a working class and making demands. Politics is shutting shit down when those demands aren't met. Politics is boycotts and strikes in unions. Politics is doing something that causes police to show up and toss gas canisters into the crowds. Politics is throwing those gas canisters back at those same cops who threw them. Politics is both literally and figuratively anchored in the streets. This is really what politicians and those who control them do not want us to savvy onto and understand. This is why they spend obscene amounts of money to focus our energy on things that don't matter. Just take a moment to consider something. What major change that has actually helped the working class in this country was made purely by voting, or even largely by voting? 
Go ahead and hit pause and Google it. I'll give you a second or two. Hey, welcome back. Did you find anything? And I mean, that's a serious question too. If you did, let me know. I looked and I couldn't find anything worthwhile, but a lot of things have happened in the history of this country. So it's absolutely possible that I missed something, maybe even something big. But all of the really big things I can think of off the top here, none of them really fit in that category. The end of slavery? I mean, I mean, listen, I hope I don't have to actually answer that one. Labor rights? I mean, there were literally domestic wars fought between workers in both private and state and federal militias and armies. Suffrage? Mass protests and countless arrests. Prohibition? Massive pressure from social groups. Repeal of prohibition? The same. Civil rights? I mean, after the government murdered or turned a blind eye to the murders of civil rights leaders, dozens of cities had to burn before the Civil Rights Act was finally passed. Hell, even the continuing and historical fights for free speech, like actual First Amendment speech, not some Twitter nonsense, but like when agents of the state show up with guns to shut you up, that sort of stuff, it's all rooted in radical union street-level activism throughout the years. And in every one of those instances, my overly simplistic account is leaving out countless acts of political protest that happened along the way, from the smallest to the largest that led to those final actions. With labor actions, it was stuff like sick-outs, slowdowns, sabotage, and strikes. With suffrage, it was mass marches, mass arrests, and, well, I think just a lot of shame as attacks on women continued. Civil rights movements featured sit-ins, refusals to move to the backs of the bus, and mass marches. And all of those leave out the gigantic body counts, lives ruined, cities burned, people arrested, people beaten, dragged, hung, and assassinated, all of which was committed by the state either directly or by proxy forces. If we consider this, I think we can see why those in power and those who truly control them in this brutal money-fueled system advocate that we stay home, trust in the mythical process, and that we vote for change rather than actually fighting for it. And let me ask you why, when those people understand what I was just talking about, do they always tell us to vote if we want change? It's because they don't actually want change, just in case that wasn't perfectly clear. They. And you know who they are, right? Those people who tell us these things. That this is the most important election of our lifetimes or whatever. It usually isn't. They tell us every four years that this guy or that woman is our savior. They definitely aren't. The working class elected Hope with Obama. And they got a massive health care package that was basically a pass-through to insurance companies that was actually a Republican plan to begin with. And Democrats controlled the entire federal government at the time. This country elected hate with Trump. And they got screwed over by paying idiotic tariffs, and then they got a couple of pennies tossed to them while the Republicans rewrote the tax code to give even more wealth to the already mega-wealthy. And the tax code, by the way, that has long been weaponized for class warfare by both parties. And that warfare is asymmetrical against us. Voting does not engender change. Not now, not historically, not in the future. But direct action does. It did in the past, 
It is doing it now, and it will do it in the future. Now, a lot of people get a little lazy here, I think. They start talking about it's all the same. They all suck. Why bother? Or they blather about third parties or changing one of the two dominant parties a la the Tea Party movement, or even a progressive insurgence in the Democratic Party. But we live under this system, so we have to deal with it, not be lazy about it. And I'm not going to go super deep as to why the it's all bad is a bad idea, but it all relates at some point or another to Duverger's Law. A French sociologist named Maurice Duverger made the observation and later wrote several papers to the effect that an electoral system based on a single vote plurality rule structure, and this is what we mean when we refer to our system as a first-past-the-post election, those sorts of elections favor the formation and entrenchment of just two dominant parties. Now, can there be some stuff around the edges? Sure, of course there can. But any variance is always and necessarily pushed to the very edges. There are small wings of both of our parties that act as leverage over the relative centers, but it really isn't that significant. Because we still have just the two parties. Even the handful of registered independents, those who usually run without a party affiliation, Bernie Sanders being the most famous of these folks, tend to almost exclusively caucus with just one of the parties. For Sanders, it's usually the Democrats. But in the end, first past the post creates two parties. Because of the game theory inherent in this system, we constantly vote for the so-called lesser of two evils and don't vote for people who we truly want to see in positions of power. I don't want to lay all of that out right now, but this is all covered in the episode we did on ranked choice voting, which I will link to in the description here if you're interested at all in any of this stuff. So just to sum it up real quick, ranked choice voting removes the game aspect of voting. By doing this, it allows us to actually have third-party representation without sending us down a dark path of a really shitty, really powerful single party dominating everything, which would tend to happen if either side votes their conscience under our current first-past-the-post paradigm. This power duopoly simply has to be broken for any substantial change to happen in this country. And voting for people won't help here because the system is what brings them to power, and to stay in power, they must reinforce that very system. This situation can be fixed. It just can't be fixed from the inside, mostly because politicians almost universally suck. Which brings me to the second major point here. And this second point comes with a test of sorts. <clears throat> Donald Trump is a racist, fascistic, misogynistic, corrupt, garbage bag of a human being. Joe Biden is a racist, lying, mayonnaise-brain-centrist, corporate-owned garbage bag of a human being. If either of those statements caused your chest to tighten and you hated me for saying it, then congratulations, because the following message is for you. And I mean, it's for everybody else as well. Please keep listening and know I love you. But if those words almost physically repulsed you, or you cheered when that other guy got it because you like one or the other, then please continue on. All right, so here it is. Politicians are not your friend. They do not care about you. 
They do not care what you think at all. In fact, I'm pretty sure they despise all of us. These people are not good people. Some might be better than others, but they are not, please focus here, good people. They do not deserve your devotion. They do not deserve your admiration. They do not deserve your friendship, your loyalty, your money, or your love. None of them, not one of them, not a single solitary political soul in Washington, D.C. deserves anything but your contempt. I mean all of that, too. These people are terrible. But, and this might be a little surprising, but I'm not going to tell you to not vote and to not engage. After all, we have to live in this world. I voted. I wanted Trump to leave. I even voted for Biden, as disgusting as that feels to say. Yeah, that's right, I did it. What of it? The thing I really want to drive home here is not to get attached. If there is a politician who shares enough ideas with you that you want to vote for them, go ahead. Vote for them. But as soon as they win, you better turn on that bastard and start screaming at them. Because they are a bad person. You need to treat them like some sort of, like a dangerous animal or something you're trying to tame and housebreak. They do something positive, you tell them, nice job. They shit in a metaphorical house, you rub their stupid little face in it. And as a side note, you don't treat animals like this, okay? That would be cruel. Only abuse your politicians, please. As humans, who have been divided by the parties and the media our entire lives, this is often hard to do. After all, we normally view the person from the other side as our enemy and the person from our side as our ally. The reality is that those two politicians on the debate stage who appear so deeply opposed to each other, they have more in common with each other than they do with us. And we have more in common with most of the people who voted for that bad politician than we do with the actual politician who we voted for. As an interesting footnote, Republicans and conservative voters and even the corresponding politicians themselves are much better at this than Democrats or leftists. They are much less likely to fall in line and vote party over all else than the Democrats and leftists are. It's one of the reasons they have held so much power for so long and drifted further to the extremes and been able to drag the Democratic Party along the way, I think. Politicians only deserve praise when they're doing something good or have done something good. They don't deserve praise just for having a certain letter next to their name or just not being that other guy. So go ahead and praise them for doing well, but never ever stop telling them that they suck right afterwards. Tell them, hey, that was right to vote yes on that bill. Good job. Good job. Give them a little pat on the back. And then immediately tell them that they suck and they need to do better. All right, so I've probably abused a dead horse here with the praise and condemnation talk, so I'll, I'll set it aside for a few minutes. Let's think about when and how things go bad if we don't condemn them enough. Let's talk about, yep, the specter hovering over this entire country. Donald J. Trump. Let's talk about the religious fervor at Trump rallies, the utter devotion to the man, the raising up of the man over the country itself. He created 
a cult of personality and centered it on the idea that he was singularly great and singularly able to help people. He presented himself as savior and almost half of active voters believed him. And when I say he presented himself as a savior, I mean it. He literally did that. He repeatedly and relentlessly told his adoring followers that I alone can fix it or I will bring back law and order. There was never a we in there unless it was used to stoke the fire of the cult itself. We love the cops, don't we? He'd ask. We love the military, don't we? He'd ask in an effort to create a feeling of unification and all of it dosed with a very heavy implication that those other people do not believe in these same things. He'd follow this series of questions with a boisterous, yes, we do, as he supplied the answer. But then it was back to the eyes. I will bring back the military. I am for law and order. I can fix it and nobody else can. And we can notice here that he used we only to get people to agree with a premise, something to be fixed usually, all in an effort to consolidate the mass consciousness, and then he used I when he talked about fixing it. He used this language to unify his followers and then get them to agree that only he could fix it. Trump supporters, at least the worst of them, subsumed their own identities beneath his, a true cult. And I recently drove through the relatively deep South. It was, it was crazy how devoted these people are to a politician. Enormous homemade Trump signs littered the roadside. Roofs of homes painted with his name. One yard was festooned with maybe two dozen Trump flags right off of the side of 95 South. I even saw one home flying not one, but two Trump flags and a Don't Tread on Me flag above the American flag on their flagpole. They literally raised a man above the country itself. This is quite literally a sickness. Trump even used religion to help ingratiate himself to his followers. And I saw a joke recently about this that said something along the lines of, how the hell have so many religious types followed Trump? He spent more time in porn stars than he has in church. Yeah, it made me laugh at least. And no, I'm no sociologist or psychologist or whoever studies this stuff, but this all seems right to me. And I think if you look at, you know, videos of his rallies, the almost rapturous audiences, the call and response, the hateful chants and so on, I think we can all find analogs to both present and past leaders who held rallies like these and they spoke like Trump. And those leaders were not good. Just, you know, a little hint. But this isn't just a Trump problem either. It's endemic across ideologies and throughout the country. Look how liberals reacted after Biden was elected. It was like some sort of savior rose from the dead to cleanse the world of all evil. And this is the same guy who wrote the Clinton crime bill. He was against bossing. He whipped votes for the Iraq war that killed so many. He was VP when the border concentration camps were built and while drone strikes spiked across the globe. Just the crime bill alone is enough to make this guy an obvious scumbag, but people sing his praises like he's some sort of selfless hero. Screw Joe Biden. He hasn't had a good idea in 70 years. 
He's no hero. He's not even a good politician. None of them are good. And listen, I'm sure they're all very nice people in their private lives. But then they go to work and they order drone strikes on weddings. I'm sure they're great to their wives and children too. And then they go to work and they write a crime bill that tears apart minority families and destroys minority communities. I'm sure they have a lot of friends who love them. And then they incite insurrections at the Capitol. I'm sure they pray and donate money and help out their neighbors. And then they go to work and use inside information to make stock trades to make millions while we starve and suffer. So, how this happens is something I find fascinating. And once again, I have no expertise here, but I'm going to make assertions anyways because, I don't know, I have a podcast so I guess I have a need for you to hear me. Politicians, they no longer talk about policy. They rely on carefully crafted personas and media appearances. They rely on snarky and biting comments on the debate stage, like when Kamala Harris implied that Biden was basically a racist. That little girl was me, she said, and minutes later the pre-printed t-shirts were on sale on her website. She went on to say that she believed Tara Reid as well, the woman who accused Biden of sexually assaulting her in the tunnels under the Capitol. She pretty much said Biden is, or at least was, a racist, and said she believed that he sexually assaulted a woman. And then she accepted his invitation to be vice president. And she has hordes of fans rabidly supporting her. They even have a nickname for themselves, the K-Hive. What a bunch of just sour cream brained simps. It literally grosses me out that adult humans behave this way. And Bernie Sanders has these people too. Don't get that twisted. Fawning packs of dum-dums who hang on every word, refuse to see his faults, and just generally blindly worship the man. This nonsense carries on even after politicians retire. George Bush, the second Bush, the shrub, he launched an illegal war in Iraq by literally lying to the world. He literally just made shit up to convince the world to invade Iraq. Led, of course, by the U.S. military. Over 4,000 U.S. troops were killed, over 30,000 wounded, countless more wounded in invisible ways, with so many others having already taken their own lives due to those invisible wounds. This fucking guy should be on trial at the Hague, but American media and political groupies are fawning over his aw shucks bullshit and talking about how he paints people. He paints? He spilled the blood of thousands of American soldiers on a fucking lie. And all we have to say is that he paints. He's a war criminal. And this psyop goes way deeper than just the media telling us things. We ourselves have become completely complicit in this thing. And we can find proof of it in our social media feeds. There is a very real and very pervasive and persuasive meme industrial complex out there that is being run by party insiders. I am absolutely certain of this. It started with hashtag blue no matter who and continues to this day to promote these goofballs as heroes. After the Democrats won the two runoff elections in Georgia, I saw so many Stacey Abrams memes that it got annoying. Pictures of Abrams with like sleigh queens splashed across them. Pics of her in a crown, queen stuff, president stuff, hero stuff. This sort of simping has to stop. 
And this isn't even to directly dump on Abrams. She did a lot of good things in Georgia. She might even be the singular reason why somebody you like won. Okay, acknowledge that and then immediately put her over the hot coals again and get her to do more, do better. The same thing happened after Biden won. Okay, he won. Now put the pressure on him. Don't keep celebrating him. He's not your friend. It's better to consider politicians as your enemies. Enemies who occasionally do something you like, but enemies they must remain. Because they don't serve you. They serve different masters. They're really twisting our emotions more than anything else. During the last primary, I was talking to somebody who supported Pete Buttigieg, a miscreant politician if ever one existed. And I couldn't believe it. I asked why. They said it was because he was smart and it would be nice to have somebody as president who could speak well. And what the hell is that? Smart and can speak? So I asked what he was actually fighting for that they liked. What were the policies that he supports that you like? They looked at me and thought about it and said, well, that's a good question. I'm just so tired of Trump. And I get that, but I mean, we got to be better than that. A lot better than that. The subspecies of degenerates, which we refer to as the American politician, is not a leader. It is a corrupt puppet of capital who will sell you down the river in a heartbeat. The only leaders in this country are you and I and those like us and those in the working class. And that term, the working class, it probably encompasses a broader swath of people than you think it does. But we will talk about that at a later time, perhaps. Do not hold these degenerates above yourself. Do not follow them. And it should go without saying, absolutely, positively, do not worship these people. Once we fall into that worship status, the status where we curry our news feeds to avoid criticism of a politician, say watching Fox News because, and I quote, they aren't mean to Trump. Once we do that, we fucked it all up. You see a pickup truck with a bed full of giant Trump flags? That person lost their way. You see someone posting every day about how Republicans are pure evil and Democrats are your savior? That person has lost their way. And not just by a little bit either. They're like one step away from, or maybe already at the point, where they're more or less okay with a dictatorship. We literally just had a group of people invade the Capitol building to kidnap and possibly harm lawmakers in an attempt to keep a specific guy in power. That's how bad our brains are. A television host was able to demagogue his way to power and cultivate that level of devotion for himself and contempt for those who did not support him. And while I obviously have a particular distaste for Trump and his fascistic ilk, this problem of worship and fealty is a very real one, and it spans party, ideology, and even social groupings. Worshipping politicians, holding them above us, the people, the working class, the normal, regular citizens of this country— it is deeply toxic. It's deeply anti-democratic, deeply dividing, and guaranteed to lead us to our end. We've seen it before, all across the world, and all across time. Let's knock it off. <laughs>